Kids, I want to start with you. And since I actually have two kids to look at, I will, I will look at the kids here. Um, I don't know, kids, if you have ever worked on puzzles. Maybe the kind of puzzles you're working on are 50-piece puzzles or 100-piece puzzles. Uh, I know my family, we've started a new tradition that often over Christmas break or some holiday, we'll, we'll get a 1,000-piece puzzle, and we will uh, work on it together as a family, something we will go to and then take a break and come back to, and it, it becomes this really fun thing of doing something together as a family, and I've been really amazed with how my kids have really engaged with it um, and, and stuck with it a lot of times. And, and actually, our youngest is the one who seems most uh, engaged and, and focused in doing that. But kids, if you think about, let's say, a puzzle that you've done that's 50 pieces, and you know the pieces are pretty big, um, and when then you put it together, you start seeing the picture come together, the picture that you see on the box, and that satisfaction of seeing all those pieces become a whole, and you get to see that picture for what it's really meant to be after staring at so many little pieces. Um, kids, in our lives, as, as human beings, sometimes it can feel like as we grow up that, that, um, that our soul, that what's within us starts becoming little pieces. And the work that God is doing in the power of his Holy Spirit is to bring together all those pieces to make us whole again. When we talk about sin, when we talk about being broken, a picture of that is how our hearts and our minds and our souls can become like separate pieces that God needs to bring back together into a whole, into the whole that he's always meant for us to be, the way he's designed us to be. And in today's uh, passage that we're looking at today, kids, it's, it's a psalm that David is, is, is um, crying out to God, a song that David is crying out to God, and he talks about wanting to be united in heart by God. And so... Kids, I hope that you, as you grow up, as you grow up in your faith, that you understand that the work that God is doing in you is to bring together all of those pieces in you to make you whole, to make you who God has always planned for you to be. And if you'd like to continue to listen in and hear uh, the rest of the message, the rest of the sermon, please do continue to listen in. Kids and adults alike, um, Today's psalm, again, is a, a lament and an individual lament. As I said, the book three of the book of Psalms is this very heavy book, a book in the middle of the books of the Psalms um, that really you feel the weight of brokenness in this world. You feel the weight of injustice. You feel the weight of sin. And here, again, it's, it's, it's actually the only psalm of David in book three of the, of, of the Psalms. And it's his, it's his individual lament. We've, we've seen laments that are for all the people together. And this one is one that David is crying out very personally to God. And we, we uh, had an example of that earlier in our confession. That also was an, an individual lament of David to God specifically. And if you remember reading through it earlier, the language in it is actually quite familiar. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you will see a lot of phrases that seem again, very familiar, ones that you've heard in other psalms, phrases that you may have heard David use specifically, and yet the way it's woven together creates a very unique psalm and a unique message, and you get this sense of trust of David in crying out to God. But it points to this thing that I think we're feeling very clearly right now amidst our pandemic, 
and that is we can feel as as a nation, as a people, as a as as a as a as a world, but also I think as a city, as individuals, this dividedness that exists. Sometimes we feel it within ourselves, conflicting things like, what do I believe? We don't even know what to believe about COVID sometimes. Is it as bad as they say it is? Is it as, as safe as others say it is? We don't know what to believe about protests. We don't know what to believe about racism. We feel this division within ourselves. And obviously we see that played out on whatever issue in our nation, a dividedness in our, our country as well. And as a pastor, what I've seen come out more and more as the pandemic goes on is I see people being brought face to face with their own very personal struggles, perhaps struggles they could put aside for a bit through all the distractions that we normally have, or perhaps they could, they could not necessarily be distracted, but they be kept, can be kept busy with work, uh, with fellowship, with church, with hobbies, and those feel restricted now or it's just the fact that inequities in our society become clearly brought out to the forefront as this pandemic continues to rage on, not only in our country, but all around the world. We see this dividedness in our own hearts, in our nation, in our world, as this pandemic goes on. And yet, the message of God is very clear in this, um, in this Psalm of David. And it reminds us and teaches us that God is steadfast in his love. And because of that, he calls us to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to honoring him. God is steadfast in his love, and he calls us to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to honoring him. This psalm also has a chiasm. You may have heard me use this term earlier in this series. And a chiasm simply means usually the big, there's this structure in the psalm where different parts of the psalm correlate to each other. And if you like to take notes, I'm going to give you the chiasm real quick. Sometimes people accuse theologians of seeing chiasms in everything, but I really do think this one's here. I didn't create this chiasm. I got it from a commentary. But uh, So in this chiasm, in this psalm, verses 1 through 4 correlate with verses 16 and 17, which is the last two verses. Verses 5 through 6 correlate with verse 15. Verse 7 correlates with verse 14. Verses 8 through 10 correlates with verses 12 through 13. And then verse 11 is the center of the psalm that really brings out this highlight, this emphasis of the message of the psalm. And we'll look at some of how these correlations uh, bring about a a very particular message in the psalm. So firstly, we're going to look at this, this, this idea of this cry of David to God to save me. He's saying, save me, verses one through four, and then again, repeated in verses 16 and 17. In the beginning and the end, the bookends of this psalm, he's saying, Lord, save me. That's his cry to God. That's his prayer. That's his felt need of God that he's bringing to him. And yet he's bringing it in a very specific way. He's, he's saying, oh Lord, I'm your servant, and you are my protector. And he's, he's asking, actually, for help in the present, He's not just looking to salvation down the road. He's not looking to the next life. He's he's looking for help very much in the present, and we can certainly relate to that. In verses 2, 4, and 16, David repeats this phrase that he is God's servant, and it shows us David's humility before God. It shows us David's dependence upon God, and we have to remember, again, he is king of Israel, and the king of Israel was meant to model for all of the nation 
a dependence on God. And that is why we, we see Scripture say that despite da- all of David's sins, very clearly portrayed in Scripture, that he was a man after God's heart because he also very clearly throughout his life modeled this dependence on God. And as we mentioned earlier in the psalm, we do hear this very clear trust that David has in God despite his circumstances. He's coming with humility again. And yet, 10 times in this psalm, he cries out, O Lord. And sometimes when we hear the words Lord, we think of it as our boss. God is our boss. And that's what it means when David cries out, O Lord. But in ancient Near Eastern times, when someone cries out, O Lord, they're not just saying, this person is my boss. They're saying, this is my protector. This is the one whom I'm under, and yes, who I serve, but also who will protect me and has promised to protect me. And so he comes to God as his protector, calling out humbly again and dependently upon the Lord to protect him in his time of trouble. Now, we don't know exactly what David is crying out for God to save him from. Perhaps he was literally being attacked by men, as it seems to suggest in this language, or perhaps it was just a stylistic choice of David to use that imagery to describe any kind of adversity that people go through or that he is going through. I think regardless whether which, which one it is that was in David's mind, we as modern readers can take this psalm and understand that when we face adversity, when we face trials, when we face difficult circumstances that we can dependently cry out to our Lord protector to save us. We don't worship God just because he brings good times and prosperity, but the Lord's heart is still to deliver those whose hearts are dependent on him, and he delights in that dependence. And a simple question to ask you as as you're going through whatever difficulty in your life Have you been crying out persistently to God, save me? Have you you followed David's example of 10 times crying out, oh Lord, my protector, save me? I know for me, from the very beginning of my faith, that's really what it's been about. And I can't say that I've lived that consistently, but the beginning of my faith was very much an example of I had this felt need. I I felt my brokenness. I felt my guilt. I felt my sin. I knew it was there. And I cried out to God to save me. And he did. And so throughout my life, whether it was, Lord, save, save me, save us from this pandemic. Lord, save us from something as simple as our dog breaking his leg and the hassle that it brings. Lord, save us in in. What does it mean to to love and raise our kids well? There's so many ways we can dependently cry out to God to, to come through for us, to save us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us. And I hope that in your faith in God as well, that you too can dependently and humbly cry out to God despite whatever doubts you have, that you can see that he is the God who will deliver. But God gives us a reason to do so not just because he says he is Lord, he displays his steadfast love to us. So verses five and six and then verse 15 correlate with each other and we see repeated here this 
attribute of God, that he is a God of steadfast love. Verse five says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this verse 15, we hear the repetition of this phrase, steadfast love, which is this Hebrew word hesed, and you may have heard me talk about it. But even verse 15 specifically harkens back to a very key time where God revealed himself to Israel to describe who he is. In Exodus 34, 6, God through Moses declared to Israel um, these words. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we hear verse 15 in this psalm is, is a virtual, um, virtual rep- replication of verse 6 in Exodus 34. It is this reminder of who God is. And this hesed love that we uh, talked about before, but I want to emphasize again, it is this love that is grounded in, founded in the covenant of God with his people. It's not just a passing romantic love. It is not even a seasoned, strengthened love of a, ma- of a strong marriage. It's not even a powerful parental love that can last for a lifetime between a parent and a child. It is a love that is somehow all those things and yet so much more. A love that is based on the promises of God himself. Promises to save and deliver for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of his people. Promises based on the unbreakable word of God. Promises to be willing for God himself to be cursed, cursed to the point of death so that his promises will be fulfilled. And we know very clearly and deeply that those promises were fulfilled on the cross by Christ. God himself, through Jesus, the son of God, dying on the cross to fulfill the promise of the covenant that he will save a people for himself. And he knew that his people were not able to be righteous enough on their own to be able to be in relationship with God. And so God, through Christ himself, paid for the penalties of our sins and our wrongdoings and our unfaithfulness to the covenant, to God's laws, so that we can be forgiven and washed anew. It is this steadfast love that is demonstrated on the cross that sets us free from our sins and from the guilt of our sins And then it's the righteousness of Christ that is reckoned as ours through faith in Christ. This is how God fulfills his promises for his people to be in relationship with him and how he shows us his steadfast love again and again. So just as in, in, in actually, this book three, this term steadfast love gets repeated again and again throughout all of the Psalms in in book three of, of of Psalms. And it makes sense that it's repeated. It is the dark book of the Psalms. So there's no better time than to to hearken back and to remember the steadfast love of God than when you're in dark, hard times. And so the psalmist throughout book three of Psalms calls upon the memory of the steadfast love of God, calls upon this attribute of God, of being a God who is steadfast in his love. 
and steadfast, the English steadfast seems almost anemic compared to what it really means. It doesn't, it's, it's almost like God's consistently loving us. That is true, but it's also so much more than that. It is the promises of God to love us and to deliver us until the very end that he's demonstrated on the cross. The steadfast love of God has been the most meaningful thing to me in my life is the only way to put it. Before I was a Christian, I struggled to feel loved by anyone. I didn't feel loved by my parents and I didn't believe that really my friends um, loved me. I was, as a friend called me, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Why bother? Nobody loves me anyway. But it was God's steadfast, hesed love that broke through that disbelief that anyone could love me. It is God's, it was my faith in God's gospel in Jesus Christ that powerfully delivered me to this place of feeling loved and my life being founded upon this hesed love of God, this steadfast, unconditional, unfailing love of God. And this steadfast love of God has been the foundation of my life. No matter what doubts I've been through, no matter what trials I've been through, no matter what um, adversity or difficulty that I went through, when my mind failed me, when my heart failed me, when my will failed me, God's love did not fail me because he is steadfast in his love. He is true to his word to love me, but not only me. Anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the reason why we can cry out, save me to God. Because he is steadfast in his love. Though he may allow suffering in our lives, yet he will come through to deliver and be present with us and to love us through it all and to use even the darkest times somehow for our good. And so he brings us in this psalm to this focal point, verse 11, where we hear this this phrase, unite my heart to honor you. Unite my heart to honor you. And we have to ask this question, how can we honor God even when we face trouble? And the answer is given here, with a pure and whole heart rather than a divided and fragmented heart. He calls us to be dependent upon him even in the hardest times. We can talk about wholehearted in different ways. To have a heart that's united by God, to honor him is to be wholehearted. And it brings to mind a very, very familiar uh, verse to us, this teaching by Jesus that we're to love him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's one definition of what it means to be wholehearted. Another definition of being wholehearted is to faithfully follow God's commands. Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 9 has a very interesting passage where we hear this idea of having a whole heart come through. In this section in Second Chronicles, we are looking at the work of Jehoshaphat, king, a good king of Israel, in a time where there were not many good kings of Israel. And he was bringing about reforms in the country, trying to bring the people of God back to God. Faith in God, 
and a life lived out for God's glory. And so let me read from verse four in chapter 19 of Second Chronicles. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the lands and all the fortified cities of Judah city by city and said to the judges, consider what you do for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem and he charged them and hear closely this. Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord or in honoring the Lord in faithfulness and with your whole heart. Whenever a case, case comes to you from your brothers who live in their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandments, statutes or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do and you will not incur guilt." This idea of being wholehearted includes in it this idea of God's justice being done. That we as his people are to live out God's justice in this world. That to be wholehearted can't just mean to try as hard as we can to make a good effort if we think of it just as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which sometimes just sounds like, I'm gonna try really hard, God. It can't just be trying really hard. It has to reflect the character of God. It has to reflect God's laws and God's justice. And so just as we heard here in Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat had to lead and had to lead in instituting reforms that brought about justice for all people in the nation. And so we see being wholehearted in the Lord for this work of God to unite our hearts to honor him means, yes, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means faithfully following God's commands and his justice. But lastly, it also means to be wholehearted means to be not divided in our hearts. And we know that Jesus speaks to this as well, to not be divided or fragmented or to be compartmentalized, living out of ourself not out of wearing the masks that we often do, that our heart, soul, mind, and strength are connected as one, as one self to honor God himself. And I think we see this in our society. We see in our society a crying out for wholeheartedness, this holistic connection of the different parts of the human being that we often talk about, our, our emotions, our intellect, our will, our souls, and, and really this idea of holistic or wholeheartedness is, <laughs> is a growing industry, and people will sell all kinds of things to you in the name of being holistic and wholehearted. But it is also God's design for us. In Scripture, when God talks about living wholehearted, he is saying you don't have actually different parts. You can't really separate your mind, from your emotions, from your heart, from your soul. It is just one thing. I've created you an embodied soul and they are meant to exist together, all the different parts of it. 
in this life, in this broken world, we are those who sin and who are sinned against. And you may have heard me say that many times. And the thing about the repetition of sinning and being sinned against is that it warps our souls, that it it warps God's design for us, that it brings death rather than life, that it fragments us. People all across the spectrum of views can believe what seems like the most bigoted, hypocritical things, and yet at the same time, be the nicest people. And that's just evidence that all of us are fragmented in some way. And the work of God to make us whole is a work that he must do in us. People can seem like the nicest people and then commit the most heinous crimes. It's a sign of being fragmented. Spouses and parents can swear their love for their partners and the children and then the next moment abuse them. It's a sign of being fragmented. Now those are relatively extreme examples, but we, we all struggle with that. We can be so divided, so fragmented, so compartmentalized in our life. And God says and promises the work that he is doing in us is to make us whole, is to put together this puzzle of a thousand pieces back into one to reflect the glory of God, to give ourselves a picture of who we are, who we were always meant to be. Mark Futado in his commentary of Psalms about Psalm 86 says this, our circumstances may change, but God's truth never does. Living according to his truth is always the best path. At times our hearts are divided. We are double-minded. We have divided loyalties. We are not perfectly devoted to God in our hearts. But even then, he is full of unfailing love and will teach us and grant us the single-minded devotion we seek that we, along with the nations, may honor his name with our lips and our lives. That's what we long for, right? That our lips and our lives have an integrity have a consistency. We all know the ways in which we will preach one thing and live out something completely differently. It's funny, I mean, I was thinking about what Lorene said about even masks. The foremost expert on infectious disease can tell you how to put on a mask and then fail to do the right thing himself. And that's just a simple thing, right? Compared to living out the the goodness that we believe in. We know there's a gap between our lips and our lives. But that's the work that God is doing in us. That's the work of God making us whole. Not saying one thing, then doing another. Not feeling one thing and then acting a completely different way. I've almost been a Christian 30 years now, which is so weird for me to say. Because my atheism is so, so fresh to me. But it's now almost 30 years ago. Next summer will be 30 years since I became a Christian. And the work that God has been doing in me over 29 years thus far is making me whole, is uniting my heart, is enabling me to honor him consistently 
without hypocrisy, with integrity, with wholeness, so that my life is exemplified by a connection of intellect, emotions, and will. Sadly, I know too well how I fall so far short of that wholeness, that there's still so much work for God to do. There's still so much hypocrisy and inconsistency and lack of integrity, lack of wholeness that I can live out of fragmented parts of me. And I grieve that brokenness in me still. And yet, praise God for his past and present work of steadfast love in my life to make me whole. And I look forward to with great hope that as I continue in faith, dependence on God, that he will continue to make me more and more whole, that that is the work of his sanctification in me. And I long for the day that he will complete it in me. I long for that for you too. I long for God to create and sew together and weave together that kind of wholeness in you. And I will pray to that end. In Jesus' name, let's pray.